This episode is brought to you by Essentia. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss. The lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision. Every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hi everyone, I'm Lee Salisbury and welcome to another episode of Soap from the Box, the podcast where I talk to stars of EastEnders, Coronation Street, Emmerdale, Hollyoaks, Home and Away and Neighbours. Every Sunday we are releasing two episodes this series, so I'm going to shut up because you've got two episodes to listen to. This one is an Emmerdale legend, you're going to love it, she's brilliant, enjoy. Before her Rowan Emmerdale, my next guest had already won a Best Actress Award at the Monte Carlo Film Festival and starred in huge hits Biker Grove, along with so many other things. She was nominated seven times and won at the British Soap Awards and played, and I'm not joking here, my second favourite character ever in Emmerdale's, closely beaten by Edna. Please welcome the incredible Charlie Harwick, who played Bow. Hi, Charlie. Who are you talking about? <laughs> I was trying to do really clever intros, you know, like Lauren Laverne on the Desert Island Disc, but I'm not very good a writer, so I'm doing my best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very nice of you. I'm not getting my head out the door. And Monte Carlo, just to mention quickly, I mean, that must have been amazing. Yeah, but I wasn't there, Lee, sadly. Oh. In absentia, um, because, well, we didn't know that the the film I made, it was a film called The Scar, and I made it with Amber Films, I think in about 19... Around about ninety-seven, um, and it 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 was really very very successful in in um, in on the continent, shall we say? Yes. And then suddenly, I got a, a phone call from somebody called Charlie. You're nominated, and it, it, it's looking really good. And it's like what? And I tried to get a flight out, and I couldn't get a, a flight out just to go to the ceremony. I thought would be exciting. Oh, oh yeah. And then I won it. It's called the Silver Nymph. The Silver Nymph. Oh my God! Perfect, perfect for you. Oh, how yes. just, how gutting you didn't come. I mean, I've been to Monte Carlo once, and I tripped over. We just me and Paul went, my husband, and we. I tripped over Bono's dog as I was looking at Sasha Boa Cohen getting out of a car, and that was just a normal evening. Is that like give the dog a Bono? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to spend the idea of the podcast is we speak a bit about the the soap that people love you for and also then go through, you know, your life a little bit as well. So I always start with a memorable moment and there's so many actually working with you. So there's two I'll mention. One was we were doing a storyline with Liz who plays Diane, obviously. I think it was the, the admittance of an affair. Um <laughs> And you, I just remember we had a little rehearsal, which obviously, as we know, never happened. And you both came round to my flat in Rodley. And I just oh, remember right. you sat on the sofa. Do you remember? Yeah, and we loved it because me and Liz are, you know, we're, 
we're dyed in the wool theatre actors and we thrive on rehearsals. And as you know, if you rehearse, then you find the richness in everything and the nuance in everything. And it means that when you get to the set to record it, you can put us anywhere and we know the scene inside out. So it, it's really, it's beneficial, isn't it, Lee, to have oh, a chance? Oh, it is. I mean, people probably at home, I mean, we talk about it quite a lot on this, but yeah, how quick it is on the soap. Now you get on, you know, and all those discussions with actors happen at the same time as you're discussing cameras with crews and mm-hmm. and uh, you get about 20 minutes to get to get it start to finish. So yeah, it was... I was glad I did that because we had some really big scenes. I think it's uh, it's so better, like you said, it's so beneficial. And then my other one was just, I remember just vividly a day working with you when we did uh, a story with Tiny the Baker, which was around the HIV <laughs> storyline and this big guy. Do you remember when we filmed yes! remember a bed scene that was, you know, hilarious and sad at the same time? Yeah, because it was part of the HIV storyline. And she kind of, she, she, she wasn't with... Um, no, she was trying to have a one night stand, I think, but was all yes, nervous about. She was being, she was being honest about it. She didn't. She, obviously, she didn't want to not tell people. She wouldn't put people in danger. Well, which I'm surprised because I think Val probably would. But um, <laughs> it was, it was how and when do you tell somebody? You know, when um, when you're getting intimate with them, at what point do you go? By the way, I'm HIV positive, but we'll just be really careful. And of course, that she'd waited until they were actually, I think, in the bedroom. Yes, I think it was. Yeah. Um, And that was one of obviously your biggest storylines, which we will talk about. So Val was introduced on the 1st of February 2004. I mean, which seems mad that it's so long ago. (laughs) I know, as the sister of Diane Sugden. And she finally left Val in August 2015. Um, obviously, she became one of the most loved couples as well with Eric Collard, Chris Chattel. Um, <laughs> and I mean, was this huge? I mean, like I said, and I'm not, you know, making it up. You are, Val was my second, is probably one of my favourite characters, my second favourite character, because I just loved, it's one of those characters you must have obviously felt this playing her that you could do so much with. Yeah, yeah. She didn't pull any punches. Um, and she was a fiend and a narcissist and uh, a bit like Trump. Yes, um, yes, very similar. You know, but you, so you couldn't, there was no danger, and I policed it rigidly that she wasn't going to be lovely. I think sometimes you're tempted to, oh, don't make her too horrible. You know, you kind of protect the character and you want to nice her up a little bit and, and, and show her heart. And I was very, very keen that we never did. <laughs> and that even though, even when she was, seemingly lovely at any moment when the when it took her to look after herself that's exactly what she would do it is and Nina Wadia actually said to me which may be a bit similar as Zainab she said what I discovered was to be you know people are these kind of people that are quite like that are, are just truthful so if someone said does my bum look big in this you know Zainab would say yes it does yeah. <laughs> which then gets a laugh but in a way that character is just being truthful and I suppose it's slightly a bit, a bit like Val you know she would tell it as it is Yes, unless she was protecting herself or up to some kind of skullduggery, and then she would tell it like it isn't. <laughs> yes, yeah, totally the other way around. So what I do to guide us through is a little quiz. Now, there's no pressure here. It's basically for me to lead on, on to stuff, but we will start to see if you do remember the answer. So uh, what I love about this is the character description. Always on the lookout for the next man to fund her lifestyle, which is how she came in. Um, what? Who did Val cheat on Rodney with? Which shocked me because I wasn't working on it then. I didn't realise she had a bit of this person. 
Do you remember? I think it was a couple of people. There was uh, Billy the Murderer, but maybe that wasn't cheating on Rodney. And um, oh, <laughs> and and the, she had a young. Yes, young this is the one. Yeah, <laughs> Danny Daggett. His name was Cleveland Campbell. I never realised that that Val had a bit of, was, bit of the him. That was really, really early on, and you know he was only a bairn. I was terrified about squashing him. You know. <laughs> um, because she was, she, well, you know, she was she was twice his age, but uh, yeah, very early, very soon after I, I joined, I had to do massive flirtation scenes in the <laughs> wool pack. She wore a lot of mohair at the time. She did. Before. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots of fluffy jumpers. So there's lots of fluff always flying about, flying around the legs emotionally. Yeah. What was it like joining a show? I mean, obviously, Emmerdale was huge anyway, but you went in, obviously, as Liz. Liz, who plays Diane's sister. There was, you know, Rodney there, played by, uh, obviously, Patrick Moe, who's amazing. It, it, was it, did you feel the pressure? I mean, as any actor, actress, I'm sure you did going into such a big show. Totally. It was terrifying. And, um, you know, it's a bit like you remember your first scene and then you remember your last scene. <laughs> When you first start, you remember every second that you're on the set and every second that you're waiting to go on the set because, yes, you're so nervous. And I just remember that the first scene that I did was with Patrick, who didn't know me very well at the time and was, um, you know, very charming and very yes. smarming. Um, and, and I had this scene with him where I was behind the bar in a fluffy jumper doing a massive, heavy flirtation with him, conversation. And I just remember Andy the first, <laughs> who had the loudest action. Oh, Andy, yes, action! <laughs> and everybody used to drop their teacups when they heard it. <laughs> but I remember I'm, I'm kind of going, and ready in five, four, three. And when they stopped the three, I thought, if I run now, <laughs> in the can, I could just run like over the hills and far away, like like the cat in Tom and Jerry when it was <laughs> until it's a tiny little dot in the distance. And then, of course, I just heard action, <laughs> and and I started to speak me lines. But my heart was I'm, I'm surprised you couldn't see it in the fluffy jumper, like like a captive bird under there because I was so. Scared. I've done filming before, but never at that pace. No, I, I was going to say to you because you would obviously done lots of theatre as well, and it must have been. Yeah. I mean, I think it was you know working as a director and seeing people come in, which was then became part of my audition process. Really seeing who you thought might not be able to hit the ground running. Um, but yeah, because you were used to obviously so many rehearsals and so many what you know, and it. I think that's why it's and because it's not you're not going on to some small TV show. It's suddenly going to go to millions, and yeah. that all must come to you as you're doing the first. As you're doing your first scene. Yeah, it was a bit like um, everything was outlined in black felt pen and inside the wool pack it was hot and it was tiny and it was dark and it, it was just a bit like an out-of-body experience. When also being in the wool pack, I suppose, I always, someone said this who I interviewed about EastEnders, because if you're in the wool pack as well, everyone's eyes are kind of on you, especially if you're new. They're, you know, and you know actors will be thinking, oh, are they, are they going to be any good? <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, it is, because you're, you're on a stage, because it's filled with actors and, and the camera will turn around and film everybody else's little bits. 
But what, especially when you're behind the bar and, you know, I've been on the table, I've been on the bar. Yes. I've been, just, you know, Val was a big one for making speeches, some of them three pages long with a with the first assistant director show. We've got three minutes to get this. <laughs> Oh, how, how understanding. Um, so you're, you're constantly, it's like being in a goldfish bowl. You're being, you're being watched and observed. And mainly, I have to say, supported by your fellow actors who all know what it's like to be in that situation. So that, you know, they're, they're willing you on and wishing you well. And you're right, because I think, um, I mean, I always got told, which is nice to me, that I was an actor and a crew director, because some directors, I think, are just crew directors. And that can obviously be, you could see that with some, you know, it's hard because almost sometimes acting is the actors are the last piece of the puzzle that people think of, which is crazy for me. <laughs> Isn't it? But yeah, so you're up against everything. But right, second question, who left our money um, in their will, so she, which enabled her to buy half the wool pack? It was it was lovely. Um, the, the woman who lived on her own. Yeah, um, oh, you know who it is, Noreen. No, oh, Noreen was a, a, a really lovely, lovely character and a beautiful storyline um, about a, a woman who everybody thought was strange who lived on the end edge of the village. I mean, it's a thing. It was an inspired. It was an inspired story. Yeah, it's that idea that you know. Um, when you live in the country and when you're a kid, you imagine everybody, you know, have you seen that woman who lives in that end house? And you, you weave stories about people. And, you know, people can get ostracised because of it and because of rumour and things. And this character, Noreen, had been, and um, bizarrely, her and Val struck up a friendship because Val had to do community service painting her house. Yes, yes. That, that was one of your early ones. Well, my funny story about her, and this is awful really, because I joined and she was on her way out, but I didn't, you know, I'd studied, as you know, you, you join us over, I'd studied everyone, but she hadn't come on my peripheral. So she was, and they kind of made a, unfortunately quite big what she wore and stuff. She did stand out. And I thought, so in my first thing, I thought she was an extra and I asked for her to be moved. Oh, she was distracting. I know. And then I remember her wig. Her wig. You found her wig in the fire, wasn't it? In the thing. But I know. Bless her. I felt awful, obviously. Um, but then that enabled you to bow to buy half the pub. And I was going to say, you know, that must. You kind of must feel like you're cemented in if you get if you get a share of the pub. Well, I I do remember the the props department coming up and saying, "Congratulations, by the way." And me going, "What?" <laughs> and also Lee. People get their scripts and they read them straight away. Not me. If I'm, if I'm in the middle of a storyline, I don't want to know the future. My, yeah. my fear is that I'll start to play it. I'll start to play towards what's going to happen. And I'd, I'd, rather point, have yeah. it, I'd rather have it like a Zodiac. <laughs> like yeah. a That's a really good point, actually. I've never actually really thought of that. And that is, yeah, I suppose, yeah, you fear... It, it's Where's trying that? to stay in the moment and not because it, it it if you know what's going to happen like like you do in life if you know if you knew what was going to happen it affects your present behaviour so I just I, I let things come as a surprise and people used to say all the time oh you've got a great scene coming <laughs> up it's like have I it's like have you not read it no. I'll read it when that block starts, just before that block starts. Because you know, I always say it's like actors doing stunts. You know, if you have to have a pint thrown over you, I think it's so hard because you, it's very hard not to expect it. <laughs> we just talked about a pint. I had a terrible thing once, and it was pressure. Matthew King timed 
Elaine by drinking a paint down and I had to come up and interrupt him just as he got to the bottom of it. And I was so aware of where he was and that I had to be accurate twice. I the lights. And he was like, he was going, Charlie, and I was so, I'm so sorry, Matthew. It's just the pressure's too great. So he, he had to down three pints. And they use real, I mean, uh, that's always quite astounding me. They actually use real beer. They don't in any, EastEnders, it's something like, you know, something disgusting like ginger ale. Yeah, it's always quite astounding that it's um, real beer. They don't know, Lee. They, they stopped that possibly after that incident. After that, yeah. Well, I remember you'd come in possibly sometimes, you know, you'd had a couple of drinks night before and you'd smell the beer in the pub at eight o'clock in the morning to start filming. You'd think, oh, I think Nick Miles used to quite enjoy a, a, a oh. having a dog in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, and what I used to like was the cocktail cherries behind the bar and a bit of lemon. Well, that was nice. But um, when I first came in, I smoked. Yes, of course, Val smoked quite a lot. And you did, did you smoke? Yeah, because yeah. the, the smoking ban didn't come in to real life until, was it 2008 or something? Yeah, so yeah. For the first four years, I, I had an ashtray and my cigarettes. When I came on set, the props team would bring me cigarettes, except I smoked <laughs> herbal cigarettes, which smelled like um, fish, like kippers. Oh, yeah, they, they smelled disgusting. Smoked. Yeah, they do. So that was the the wool, the wool pack. People used to go, oh, has Charlie been in here smoking our cigarettes? And it's like, sorry, I didn't Isn't want that to that crazy have now to think of smoking on a set? I mean, it's mad. I mean, obviously I did these with June Brown and she... They, they had to get round the smoking ban by putting every scene that she was in, there had to be a disclaimer saying June Brown may smoke in this scene. Um, <laughs> and then they got away with it and she just chain smoked. I mean, literally the whole time. That amazing woman, amazing. She is still with us after how much she smokes. But uh, yeah, so June was everyone who got away with it. But uh, okay, so who did Bow and Pollard foster? Ah, oh, Amy. Amy Warren, yeah, Chelsea. Chelsea, gorgeous half penny. Oh, I mean, she is one of the most gorgeous, and she's been on this. And she said, actually, I was I meant to play you a clip, but she said um, that obviously her most enjoyable times were working with you and Chris. And I mean, that's when we were all there. And she said it kind of never felt the same afterwards. And and she said that what she loved was you had always said it kind of reinvented uh, Val and Pollard slightly having her. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, because you know, Val had her own children. She wasn't really that bothered about them. But then this girl, this girl, I don't know, this girl came into their lives and Val suddenly was fierce to defend her. Yes, she, yeah. She was more her child than than, than the other two were. Um, but also, I, I really loved her. I remember her first day on set and she was just watching me and Chris with her mouth open um, because me and Chris had worked together for so long. We shorthanded everything, and me and Chris get on like a house on fire. I'm so lucky that he was my pretendy husband. Best marriage ever. You live in separate houses, and you never sleep together. Yes. <laughs> it makes for a very harmonious relationship. Yeah. And, I mean, I used to love working with you two because it was – you knew if you worked with you two that things – we're going to be organic, which I love, because I don't like going on and just going, right, this is what I thought, and then no one has an opinion. You know, I love the fact that we would work always as a team on scenes with you, and you could see magic happening, I think. Do you know what I mean? And and we we recorded mostly um, in the village. So we the B&B is done out like a and b inside. So the, the, it wasn't a big leap of the imagination for us to pretend that we ran a B&B &B in the village because 
that's where we used to film. And it used to make it used to make things organically happen. And we knew the set really well. So we could say to you, you know, right, can we do this first bit where I, I'm I'm out of sight and then I can just burst through that door? Yes, because yeah. we knew how to set up the cameras and you could really use the set like it was a living, breathing uh, space. So that, that was that was a real treat for us. But yeah, Chelsea coming in and coming into the village and she had that awful holy jumper on that she used to wear all the time. And red hair that she said <laughs> made her hair nearly fall out, which, you, I mean, because you started wearing a wig as well, didn't you? Because of all the, you know, what it does to your hair every day. Yeah, because it was straightened. My hair was straightened every day and my hair's so fine. <laughs> if I said, look, you know, You've got me soul. You're not getting me hair as well. Yes. <laughs> but they were great. So they, they made, they, they um, got a wig that was made to my hair colour and my hair style. So it was it was a seamless transition. Although I have to say that Val's wig was much more luxurious. It was. Very, yes, it was. I remember it, it was almost carried around like a crown <laughs> <laughs> on this little head. But yeah, like so, <laughs> bringing up the B&B which we haven't before and I mean obviously so again listeners yeah that's one of the there's that set and there's the shop used to be on location that's, it was uh Edna's was down not in a it was Edna's was in Mill Cottage which was Jimmy and Nicholas but the B&B I mean as you will lay testament to I mean you've got the village outside which is cold but literally if you film in a house in the village it's just as cold as outside isn't it and then the actors have got to kind of take off their coats and pretend we're in midsummer. I mean it used to always used to fathom me why it was so cold, but it was freezing, wasn't it, in those houses? It was, and I feel so bad because I used to be screaming, shut the door! Shut oh, the God, door! Thank God, because everyone used to just walk in and out and leave it bloody open. Because all, all, all the crew got balaclavas on. and you got thermals, north faces. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Val's in a sexy little blouse. Like, <laughs> Will you shut the door? You can see me breath! That's me breath. <laughs> You can see me breath, you know. So, and, and of course, I knew where all the radiators were. And as soon as I came on set, before I even went into makeup, I'd be in the B and B turning them all on. <laughs> I would actually, if I had scenes with you guys, I would go in there before lunch or whatever and make sure they were on as well. Because I'm sure <laughs> somebody used to turn them off on purpose. Um, but apart from, so you had Chelsea. I mean, and I do all attributes to Chelsea and you two because I think, I mean, and no disregard to anyone else, but. When you have, there's only certain people I think that can come in and just blow you away with their acting. And Chelsea was one of those, I think, you know, and that's always going to be, it's exciting when you see someone who's also so good, isn't it? Who then brings something new. Because I, I mean, I love the saying that you should always surround yourself by people you think are better than you. And it's, it's that feeling of like, I loved working with her and you guys, because just when you've got that level of acting, it goes to another level, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's making us wallow in it. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't thought about the detail of working with Chris and Chelsea, you know, for, for years. It's years, years, I know. And I do miss yeah. those times. And then also we mustn't forget, you know, Matthew and, and Natalie, actually, because I think as a family, you know, Matthew Wolfinger brought so much as David to your oh, little gang as well, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, lo lovely. And and like Chris. The so like Chris, yeah. You, you know, they're both outdoor creatures. They're both sporty. Um, because of course Matthew, he, he he was in Team GB. You know, he was a he was a gymnast, and then he was a dancer, and he can sing. And it's like you could fold, you could fold Matthew in half. He's symmetrical with a lot yeah. of gravity, so he could he could go on as an attacking midfielder for Newcastle with no warm up tomorrow. He's just he's he's 
sporty and a physical, and so is Chris. And they're both, you know, probably about five eight, five nine. They're they're alike. So they worked beautifully as father and son. They did, yeah. And also the three of you. I mean, uh, you know, brilliant comic actors as well as being serious. And I think, did you? Did you? Is there a point you realise you're really good at comedy? Because you know, it's. I think it's the one of the hardest skills of acting comedy actually to get right. Get away, man. You know you've got it when you're born with it, Lee. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, as a director, I think I've got quite a good comedy thing. So that you do know, you know you've got a patron for something, don't you? But because all three of you really had quite a lot of physical comedy as well as as well as well verbal. And that's, uh, you know, quite hard to get right and make it good. I'm not so good at, I'm not so good at the physical comedy. I'm, kind of, I'm terrible at pratfalls and things. Whereas Chris Chattel's great. He just, you know, he also bites it on the ankle when you're concentrating and talking to somebody else. That's not so good. Oh, yeah, yeah. How agile he is. But, um, yeah, I, I've done loads and loads of comedy um, in theatre. You know, I've been involved in theatre since I was 19 year old. Yeah. And I, I, I am happy in both comedy and drama. I have a passion for for both but you're right comedy is it's much more technical you know drama you can do it all from your from your soul oh, and yeah, your yeah. Guts. but you've with with comedy you've got it you've got to time it you you know like like the best drummer in the world if you miss the hi-hat man you're knackered so it, it's that it really it relies on rehearsal it does comedy. yeah because i think you're right then drama you can almost you can dredge up stuff, you know, you can put yourself yes. sometimes in the position. Comedy, I don't think you can really, because a lot of comedy, you know, you can't, you don't really go, oh, that, that reminds me when that happened. You don't, it doesn't come really from the soul. It's much more of a, a skill in a way. Yeah, and it's it's very, it's very technical. You know that if you look a certain way on a certain beat, you'll get a laugh. And if, if you miss it by a nanosecond, it'll just fall flat on its face. So Yeah, and I think the thing with theatre, what I kind of loved about, theatre is that you get you know early on in the run it's almost like you've got reviews every night you can feel the energy from the audience of what works but obviously in television you don't really know no no you don't and you don't know which shot's going to be used and yes it's a very technical exercise which I have to say Lee when you said that you were an actor's director um you knew when you were working with you that you could come up and go Lee should I time that last bit? Are you going to use those shots where it's like over the shoulder? Because if it is, then I'll I'll direct it there if that's what yeah, you're going to use. Yeah. And you were great because you would collaborate. Uh, you know, it wasn't anybody trying to say, I think you should do it like this. It's just, if you let me know, then we can help each other. Yeah, which, this, the team, which is what it's about, isn't it? It is about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the final question was, who prompted Val to reveal her HIV status to the pub after posting about it online? And I'll give you a clue. He's actually on telly now with a pair of skates on. <laughs> but hang on. So someone posted online in Emmerdale, the character, that there was someone at the B&B with HIV. Oh, my goodness. Who was it? Oh, it was Jacob, Joe Warren Plant. Oh, of course. I'll get that pesky kid. He <laughs> <laughs> was obviously, I mean, I, I watched Dancing on Ice the other week just to see him, and oh my God, I can't believe he's, uh, it was only about, you know, up to my chest when I last worked with him, and now he's this 
you know, full grown man. It's mad to see. But that brings me to the HIV story, really, which obviously was, I mean, I remember at the time, I think the fact was that actually what people didn't know was that a big percentage of people with HIV were, were ladies in their, you know, past their 40s, was it? It was the fastest, grow- the fastest growing group because it was post-menopausal women and a lot of women thought that the menopause would bring them freedom and that they didn't have to worry about birth control anymore. And a lot of women getting divorced and finding new partners and somehow did not think that sexually transmitted infections might be a big issue, especially HIV. And I don't know how, but I think people still thought it was a young a young person's thing, a gay thing, which of course it isn't, you know, it's, and, and women fell into this trap. I don't, somehow through ignorance, fell into this trap and they were the highest growing group that were contracting HIV. And I think ignorance were also probably helped by our press, you know, that highlighted it as as a gay, you know, kind of disease more than anything, you know, so it was, in, in a way, you know, you're led, so many people are led by the press and what they hear, unfortunately, and it wasn't. Their community had wrestled this, had wrestled it, and, you know, it, they had found a way, and, of course, science had, had come on leaps and bounds. But can I just tell you how it came about? Because Kate Oates, the director, uh, the director, the producer, asked me to come upstairs. Yeah, I've been called upstairs. Yeah, oh, God, oh, God. You know it's either brilliant news or the worst news. Yeah, so... Kate said to me, she she said, look, I've, I, and she she mentioned that she knew somebody who had HIV, who, who'd phoned her up to tell her that they'd been uh, diagnosed as HIV positive. And she said she was bereft. And she said, I'll rush around. What can I do? And she um, thought that they, they would be dying. And the person, she said, it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. You know, we've progressed so much. I've been diagnosed, but... I can take this medication, and if I am very careful, you know, blah, 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 it can be normalised, completely normalised. It's it's fine. You know, we, we've got to make sure it's prevented from spreading, but people can live full, happy, ordinary, healthy lives and be HIV positive. So she said that she wanted to, to, to let the public know about this. And I, in one of the plays that I was in when I was in a theatre and education company in the very early 1980s, when HIV was gripping people with fear and horror, and the Tory government at the time under um, Thatcher was trying to push homosexuality underground by almost making it illegal to be out if you were in any form of um, public life, like as a civil servant, a teacher, anything, you know, this was clause 28, clause 29. So it was it was a terrible anti-gay, homophobic time, but it was so vital that we taught young people about this illness. So I was in a play then that toured around high schools teaching young people about HIV and saying this is not gay only, this is not black only, this is not young only, old yeah. only. You so know, in a way it came around in a circle then and then yeah. we, we taught people how to have safe sex in school. I mean obviously yeah. not practical sessions, but it was really candid and the play was really candid, but it gave young people um 
a, a space where they could candidly discuss it without fear of being judged or, you know, condemned yeah. for asking questions. So <laughs> when Kate said to me, would I be prepared to do it? I bit her hand off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as I've always said, soap, for me, one of the best things about soap is you can make a difference in these big, powerful storylines because it's in people's yes. homes every day. And you yes. can have a really slow building story. I mean, I will always mention the cop death I did with Charlotte Bellamy, which oh, yes. was astounding only for me because of the letters we got in, you know, and, you know, you, you felt like you were doing something so special, not because to win awards or performances, but because yes. you felt like in TV that can be so you feel like sometimes it's meaningless your job you know you know you know then you've got like you did with that story you've got a real chance to highlight something to make a difference to make it to make a difference absolutely and you know uh, I, I remember the first person when the storyline was just coming out and of course you know when you said before who put it online all I was thinking of was that that the bloke that came to visit her to tell her that he had tested HIV yes, yeah and I, I, I think I went into an absolute paroxysm of, of that because I loved those episodes. And he was... Then it was a great character, Val, to choose. That's what I love. I remember when they wanted to bring a new gay uh, person in, actually. And I suggested that they made Aaron gay. Um, yes. So I will take some of the credit for that. And uh, I remember Danny, a person really wanted to do it. and Because uh, I said to them, why do we have to bring another carnet being? I said, there's a real thing about, you know, someone in a family like that, in a real Yorkshire family, that... Yes. Would really struggle because you know it's not in the family's makeup, and there's still so many families like that. And I think you know it's so important to get the character right to do that with, isn't it? And Val was perfect, I think, just because, yeah, because you wouldn't. It sounds ridiculous to say you wouldn't expect it. You wouldn't, you know. And it, so it's great to, you know, it helps to shock people when it's a character you wouldn't probably expect. Yeah, well, it shocked me when I got the script. And of course, there'd been a storyline beforehand because she'd nicked off to Portugal and then came back with um, <laughs> with a with a friend who tagged along with her. Who um, I think you remember that storyline. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, lice, I think, were brought back by the friend. Weren't yes. They? So, but anyway, this was Val's holiday to Portugal. And uh, she came back and, you know, swore, swore on her own life that she hadn't been with anybody else, no matter what uh, Pollard thought, no matter what tattoo she'd had, you know. Yes. Um, and then and, and I kind of believed it. And then, of course, this fella turns up and said, you know, we had that thing in Portugal. And it's like, shut up, man. It's, shut yes. Up, shut your face. And I'm and sure of that as well, though. Pollard, uh, Pollard and Diane had to admit that they'd had a bit of a thing. Um, yeah, yeah. they've been, been up to no good at the same time <laughs> what I loved is she expected forgiveness from Pollard but obviously would never forgive him <laughs> no no never no, never never um, so we'll bring it to the end which was when um, obviously you were part of the huge helicopter crash uh, and you, you wanted you'd obviously left before for a few months to a play um, which but then you decided to leave but you weren't expected to die were you at the time you didn't know you were going to be dead in it no, and, and 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 once again, this sounds absolutely ridiculous. If any actor had said to me before I was going to leave, um, oh, the, the tallest me character was going to die, and I was absolutely devastated, I'd say, get a grip, man. And then the tallest was going to die, and I was absolutely devastated. Yeah. Um, but I was really, really 
horrified, not because I wanted to come back, not because I thought, oh, I'll keep the door open, because I didn't want... Bound to go. Yeah, I know. I, want, I, I just assumed that she'd go off after Amy, who was the, the biggest love of her life, you know. Um, and, and the idea that, that Pollard was going to be... On his own, I know. It was terrible. And I even... Um, cancelled me leaving party, Lynn. I remember, I remember you did. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I think it's, I, I totally get that as well. I mean, I do think, like you said, it's saying, it happened to Pam St. Clement as well when I was at EastEnders. And she, I remember she came in the pub in the Vic, after she had been told she wanted to leave as well, but didn't expect them to kill Pat. And I remember we were all in tears because it was like, you can't kill Pat. Like, you can't, I mean, I do think it's, you know, and I will say silly decisions when they get rid of characters who are so iconic and can come back. But um, yeah, it's like you said, it was a bereft of losing that character. I mean, I remember the scenes with Chris afterwards. With I mean, literally, uh, were heartbreaking. Oh, poor Ben. But do you know what? Pull this round. I did. I did pull myself round, Lee, which you have to do. Yeah, but well, I, it's working, so it, isn't it? <laughs> it was terrible. It was terrible when I first heard. But I talked to my niece Abby, and I went, you know. The, the, that they, they, they want to kill her off, Abby, just between me and you, obviously, darling. And she went, well, the thing is, if you've got to go, you may as well go out with a bang. And I thought, <laughs> you're right, you know, Abby, you're absolutely right. I've got to get over myself, and I have got to make the most of this exit, and bye, we relished it. Yes, it oh, yeah, good. and it was brilliant. And I do think, I mean, obviously, the different actors and different friends I know, I mean, obviously, as we know, if you go in the back of a cab, it means, God, you've been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just how you're how you thought of by the press. Yes, producer. totally, yeah. I mean, I think part of it as an actor, I mean, how did you feel? Because I think it gives you that, obviously, it gives you definite closure. Like Sam Giles says this on her podcast, you know, it's quite, in a way, she said she wishes she had been killed because you've always got it in the back of your mind. God, when, you know, times are hard and you've got a few months, should I go back? So, I mean, I suppose in a way it gives you that closure that you think, right. I mean, I'm saying this, I'm just about to lead on to the fact that you went back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a false ending. This is a good it is a false ending Because you did go back, obviously, to play um, what I love. I, I read this thing from Inside Soap magazine, which I do love. This is great. So when you went back, as obviously as a ghost, they said no one else has ever done a better job of milking their death more than Val Pollard. <laughs> Her DVD of final requests was Valtacular and quite literally the campest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, yes, that was the big game. I did it my way, which, of course, Trump had. Playing with yes, the yeah, very <laughs> And I did think, by God, he's nicked that off Val. But I wonder if he did, and the big red hair, you know, kind of the, the, the ginger appearance from neck upwards as well. Um, I watched this morning, the second time you went back, which was great, brilliantly filmed. I've never seen it when you were in white, and everyone's oh, yeah, Christmas present. Yes, it was great. Yeah, it was fab. Yeah, where she smoked a pretendy cigarette. Yes, and like Lucy had this most horrendous makeup, and then Robert, there was, a, but what was it like going back? You know, was it, um, was it strange? Because I, I mean, I know how things quickly move on and, the, you know, the cast are unrecognisable, you know, when you go back a year, two years later. Well, it was, it was lovely because, of course, like, like we know, a lockdown, like we were talking before, Lee, what you miss when you're not working are the people. Um, and going back and seeing the women that I loved in the makeup department and the man, the only one man, um, <laughs> the costume department and actors and... Uh, 
just before I forget what was lovely about the death scenes as well, is that when I first came into Emmerdale, me and Liz Estenson had loads of two-handers, a yes, bit like yeah. ones that we're talking about when we came around to yours. And at the end, me and Liz had the two-hander in the House of Mirrors. So we worked together, just solely us, for days. And Which that was a really lovely ends- end. Those end scenes are fantastic. And what I also love is the kind of throwback, like you said at the beginning, when she struck, you know, got a cigarette out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of was like a nice, you know, round circle as well, wasn't it? Kind of, and that power that she had by the end, you know, going, well, I'm just, yeah, it was It was a really, if you're going to, you know, like we said, if you're going to have to have to die, it, it was a good, because um, you and Liz, were, I mean, we have to mention you and Liz's relationship, so much to mention, really, but because that was, did you, had you worked with Liz? Had you met Liz? Because as we know, as actors, you're thrown into these relationships and on soap, it's a big relationship, you know, sisters. Um, yeah. Had you had time together before you started filming? Only in the in the audition. And of course, I knew Liz and I'd, I'd met her socially, but I'd never worked with her. Um, but I, I just, I loved working with her. She's, you know, she's a proper actor. She is. Um, you know, she, she makes every scene work and she takes every line seriously and I, I just loved I, I loved creating these that relationship these yeah what I loved I suppose is they were supposed to be a bit you know at, they were constantly at loggerheads or not and I do think you and Liz are quite different as to work with as actresses and that really works you know there's something amazing in that chemistry you had with her I, I completely believed it whenever I had scenes with her I completely believed that she was my sister completely. yeah I kind of do still believe that. <laughs> as much as I also still believe she's teabag. So, I mean, I'll never get over that. So, yeah, well, okay. Well, that was Emmerdale, which was obviously amazing. And we'll move on, just so we've got time to talk about other stuff. Um, so, the real Charlie Hardwick was born in Wall's End, Tyne and Weir, as Claire Hardwick. Claire? Yeah. So that's your real name. Is Charlie a stage name? Yeah, Charlie's a stage It was a nickname when I was a teenager. And it kind of, it somehow followed me into a youth theatre after nobody had called us Charlie for years. And then when I was 19, I went to this youth theatre and somebody was there that knew us as, as Charlie, just as this stupid nickname of the two Ronnies. Charlie Farley and Piggy Malone were two detectives. <laughs> I, I could have been Piggy Hardwick very easily, but my friend Linda, had that name, and I had Charlie. So, you know, I, I came into this youth theatre, I said, hiya, Charlie, how are you? And it's like, it, it's Claire. <laughs> um, and then people called us Charlie, and then once I'd done my first play, then it becomes part of your CV. So I keep it as an, an equity name, but people call me either. Family call us Claire. You can kind of, the people who, who met us after I was an um, actor, they all call us Charlie. Charlie, yeah. Oh, so I, I thought it might be that younger listeners won't understand this because equity, obviously, that you had to have at the you know the years ago. Obviously, if someone had the same name, which amazed yeah. me that so many more people did it, you had to change your name. That's right, David Tennant. Apparently, I heard last night he's he, I can't remember his name. His name was, but he ha- he changed it to Tennant because he just read a, an article by um, the Pet Shop Boys. Oh, really? Oh, brilliant! <laughs> Tenant's name, <laughs> and I think Nicola Wheeler went through about four names before she could choose one that she was allowed. Yeah. Um, so was, was it? Was it? Were you always a? Did, was it in your? Because I always think, was it? If you know, what's um, what's it like coming from somewhere you did? Was it a drama infused place? Was it there on your doorstep? Um, when no, you- 
Not at all. I didn't That's even I thought, yeah. be an actor. You know, working class northeastern lass. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, maybe I thought that actors were grown in greenhouses somewhere, but <laughs> it it was nothing to do with my life. I loved drama on the television. I'd been to see um, an amateur production when I was at school and doing English literature all level. I saw a view from the bridge and thought, oh, it's great. But I had nothing to do with it. And then when I was 19 and my best friend Polly got engaged and didn't go out with me on a Friday night, went out with her fiancé on a Friday night, I thought, well, I'm not stopping in. And I saw a little advert in the local paper saying that there was a youth theatre starting and you didn't have to do any acting and we might do a bit of singing and you can just tell about behind the scenes. And I thought, I'll pluck up the courage and I'll go along because it's something to do with a Friday when I'm not seeing Polly. (laughs) My life completely changed that night. It completely, entirely changed course. I can't can't tell you. I don't know what would have happened to us. Stumbled across it. I was working in an office. I was a civil servant in the Department for Health and Social Security in Newcastle, where 12,000 other people worked. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do with I didn't know. I just thought that that was going to be it. That was life, I, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my life, even though what I'd wanted to do was ride around um, America on a Harley Davidson. That didn't seem to be uh, what was going to happen. And then I just met all these other young people, had such fun. And these um, arts workers who said, you're good at this, you know, you could go to college. And it's like, go to college. I don't know anybody who's been to college. Why would I go to college? It's like, so you could be an actor. Be an actor? I couldn't (laughs) be an actor. And, you know, they they kind of encouraged us. And luckily, I've managed to earn me crust as an actor. Yes, you have. And I was the same a bit. I remember growing up in a small town in Sussex and I, you know, I, I remember going into the, you go, you go for that careers advice saying at the time I wanted to be an actor or a director and they, they kind of laughed. <laughs> and someone would give you work experience at the local newspaper. And I thought that was the height of, you know, my d- reporting on dog poo in a park. And I thought, well, this is all right. <laughs> I just thought TV was something, I, I mean, I always think London was in my head, you know, like unless you're from London, you yeah. know, you can't do it. And I, um, yeah, I was the same. I just saw one one thing in the theatre actually, and I just with Maggie Smith. Um oh, wow. I thought, no, this is what I need to do. <laughs> yes. I need to do something in this industry. And and once once it gets you, it gets you, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, but you know so if you've got if you've got that kind of energy, you know what actors are like. It's like herding cats. We talk and most of us are on the front foot and we're storytellers and we love other people's stories yeah. and 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 to have that this job as an outlet, oh, what a relief. Otherwise, we'd be imposing ourselves on people in all sorts of civilian world. Like, yeah. Well, I think we're the kind of people, I think, especially actors who can't just, you know, it's a big risk, as we, I always say when I do actor workshops, you know, it's a big risk to be an actor because you will, I always think there's no other, because Paul, my husband, always says, God, all actors are a bit mad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I always say, but, but I, and to explain to people listening, actually, it's, I think I've always said because actors, you know, as a director, hopefully I'll never go back to being a runner, but actors, you're constantly not told in auditions why you didn't get the part. Um, you don't get those calls. So you, you, the self belief in yourself is really hard to keep up, I think, as an actor, and your self confidence. Yeah. You have to be your own person. You have to be such a strong person to go through that. And you could be an Emmerdale, and then, you know, I know I've interviewed people on this, and no, 
not, it's not looking down on it, which our press do, which is then, you know, one's gone in as a fireman, one's a builder, and that's seen as dreadful by the what a failure in the papers, which I think no. is disgusting. Um, yeah. But it's that level of that's what I mean. You can, it's a very hard way to navigate because to get that success is then very hard to say goodbye to as well as an actor. So you do yeah. need to be a strong person, don't you, as well as talented. Yeah, you've got to. But, but luckily, I was talking to somebody yesterday. I don't think I'm better than anybody. I, I am so fortunate that I've stumbled into a world where I, I think I can I can do it. I can do it. It's like I'm, I think I'm in the right job. You yeah. Know, for, for yeah. skills that I've got. But there's been times where I haven't and I had to run a French antique shop in London for four years, say. And I was no less an actor then or no more an actor then and no less a person and no more a person. Yes. Which is all people were all equal. And sometimes you get the opportunity, you know, the rare gem of an opportunity to, to be able to do that for your living. And I am so lucky that that's what's happened but I don't think any less of anybody in fact anybody who went into the the, the fire service or the ambulance service I know I mean yeah god I mean I mean incredible but yeah. but yeah I think you're so right saying that and that's people's belief and I do think I always say to younger actors you know don't I think the biggest thing these days that I want to hammer home on every every show is you know don't do this for the fame which is now publicized as almost what people are doing you know to be so no. you know the fame is the the worst part of the job you know, yeah, that's the whole you want to be an actor, you want to be an actor, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be famous. <laughs> no, no, well, that, it's, there's nothing there, that's just empty. Yes. But you want to be, if you want to um, collaborate with other people, get to the not end of every little nuance of a character and a character's relationship with other people. You know, if you love storytelling, if you can manage not to have a nervous breakdown and pretend that an audience isn't in front of you, then, you know, you go for it yeah totally so there we go everyone now i mean there's so much in your career charlie that, that we could mention some just obviously lots of theater tv wise you've done our friends in the north uh casualty the royal bill and but the film billy elliott as well oh don't i did loads on billy elliott and i'm on the cut room floor except for one tiny little part where i pop my head over and say to julie walters they're not in uh, but I spent a long time, I was involved in the um, the workshop as well that led to the musical wow. and the whole development of it, because it's written by Lee Hall, who I've worked with loads, because he was a product of the youth theatre in War's End as well. And um, he's the writer, obviously. Um, we developed the play. It was started off being called Dancer and it was a radio play and then developed into a play and then the film and and everything. I'd, I'd love to have played the uh, played the dance teacher in the musical, but I, I went into Emmerdale. Yes, oh, that's so amazing to be involved. And uh, you know what I I always think there's something so magical about northern films. Brass off. I'd see Johnson on the podcast talk about that. Isn't there? There's something so that you can't put your finger on it. Just they 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 oh, just set them aside from other films. Yeah, I did this. I did a really lovely movie, movie called Purely Belter that came out at the same yes, time. Brilliant yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mark Herman who did Brust Off, the same director. And I think it's a, a real magical little film, but not many people know about it because it didn't. Here's a thing. Here's a little prejudice thing. When um, Billy Elliot and Purely Belter came out at the same time, they said about Purely Belter, Oh, we've already got one film from the northeast. Oh my God! See, I know. <laughs> Can you imagine that being said about London? No, we've got a film set in London. 
Yes, yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't have two. That'd be too much. Um, I mean, I suppose bad, t- not the bad timing coming out, any film coming out against Billy Elliot, I suppose, only because some films just do, uh, Purely Belt is amazing as well, but I suppose something, you can't put your finger on what's going to literally hit. I mean, I remember The Greatest Showman, hearing an interview with Hugh Jackman when they had to actually pitch it to studio execs, they had to sing to get money because people were saying no. And you just think, my God, look at where that went. And if you watch, <laughs> you'll have to watch it, Charlie. It's online. But you're now obviously in Ackley Bridge as Sue Carp, another brilliant character. I read, again, something uh, I read. What, what Can I read my writing here? Um, she's a professional nightmare, a loose cannon. And uh, you described her as thinking she's the jailer in charge of the punishment wing. <laughs> she's horrible. She's foul. And did, was it a character that jumped off the page again to you when you got sent? I couldn't believe it. When they sent me the the, um, the bits of script, I thought, I, w- I would give my right arm to do this. This is just, she's she's fantastic. And she's appall- she is appalling. She's absolutely appalling. But um, I just, I know that I could push the cheek of it. Yeah. But not sweetener, not you know, the same as the, the same as well. I'm not interested in, in making and then in the end she was nice because in the end she isn't. <coughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's great. And I love working with the young people. I apps I've got a classroom only. I know got, it must be really I mean it's well, I kind of love what I love about actors is you get to play these roles, you know, like you get to play a teacher, which I part of me would always love to be a teacher like you actually get to go to work and do this thing and then come home and, and forget about it it's a bit, it, a bit like we're seeing in the uh, in the wool pack when you're in a classroom so you've got like 10 of the main young actors in and then you know 15 supporting artists and you're doing it you're doing a performance you're yeah, doing for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah but so is teaching that's exactly what teaching is it's a performance to you I know, and I think, well, I think homeschooling is proving to all parents the job that teachers do is incredible. They can't even cope with their own kids, let alone having a classroom of 30. So, so mine's great because I can, I don't have to wait till it goes to the bell. I just have to wait for and cut. But yeah, and then you're right. Do you film it at a real school? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, I mean, it, it's wonderful. So, you know, a bit like I said about the B&B, I'm in a school room. Yeah overlooks the Bronte Hills of Halifax and, wow. and most of the, the young people who are in it are cast from the local area. The supporting artists are all what they call street cast. So they're just kids. Oh, brilliant. In the area. And it's a, a huge mix, you know, because if people don't know the series, it's about a white school and an Asian school, high school, that have to combine. So they just... They face head-on Islamophobia, homophobia, you know, all all the things that I absolutely think is vital that we tackle, you know, all of the political issues and yeah. things that affect young people, you know. There was a young Muslim lesbian, Lass was heading, she was the lead in the first two series. Oh, it's great! It's groundbreaking and really brave writing, and it's diverse writers, diverse crew, diverse cast. I just—it's so progressive, and I adore being part of it. And going to work, and kids coming up and going, "How are you doing, bro?" Oh, brilliant! <laughs> <laughs> You're down with it now, Charlie. But you, <laughs> you saying that leads me to my last point, which I totally and utterly respect you for, because you've always said, you know, what you love 
about the ability of drama is to, you know, counter ignorance and racism and prejudice, like we were talking about, which is great that you've got this platform that you do, you know, that, that I think people who don't do it, you know, you have got that platform to do it. And it's amazing. So Black Lives Matter, for instance, must be amazing for you to, to yeah. see things coming like that happening within our TV world. Absolutely thrilled, thrilled when the footballers take a knee before the, the match. Absolutely thrilled that it's part of, you know, um, uh, kick racism out, show racism, the red card, which is a, a thing I've been involved in for years, that sport has now gone, right, stop fannying about with this. Yeah. This is what we believe. And Sky has adopted, you know, it, it, it's, it, it makes me very glad to the, to the core of my heart as a country, we are progressing in this way and tackling that level of prejudice. I can't bear prejudice and I cannot bear inequality and I cannot bear injustice. So if I can be of assistance by telling stories that count as it, I'm as happy as a pig in muck. Well, Charlie, it's been so amazing to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. Um, and just, yeah, brilliant to talk to you. And I, I still miss Bow. Oh, she's she's there somewhere. She's Please. there She's in our heart. <laughs> I'd like to thank you because I've been on a little trip down memory lane in detail and I did not enjoy it. Oh, good. I, I, I love Val still. Yes, and it's lovely to, like I said, the whole point of this is to give people out there a chance to, you know, take a trip down memory lane as well and celebrate these uh, people and the people who play them. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lee. The brilliant Charlie Hardwick. We have had so much fun over the years. Thank you so much to Charlie for coming on this season of Soap from the Box. Remember, there are two episodes every Sunday. There's another one you can listen to right now. It's Hollyoaks star Ross Adams, who I know from working in the office with him on Coronation Street. Find out more about that if you listen now. I'd like to thank David and Eileen Stevens and the Bothy for all their edit and technical wizardry. And also to Ian McCullum for all of his press help. Stay safe and see you next week. 